This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Alice McDermott, whose latest novel is Absolution. This is the ninth novel. Other novels include The Ninth Hour from 2017, Someone, After This, That Night, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, The Bigamist Daughter, Charming Billy, which won the National Book Award in 1998, and one nonfiction book, What About the Baby? So, Alice McDermott, let's go back to the publication of The Ninth Hour. The book comes out, and it's time to start another book. What brings you to Vietnam in 1963? What brings you to the start of Absolution? Actually, I I always have two books going at the same time. So Absolution had its start before uh, The Ninth Hour was off my desk. And two sort of inspirations, so to speak, for this novel. One was Graham Greene and his novel, The Quiet American, which I've read many times. I first read it as an undergraduate English major. This would have been in the early 70s. So Vietnam War was still raging Saigon hadn't fallen yet. And the war was also very much a part of my own teenage years growing up, coming of age, however you want to refer to it. And even as a 19 or 20 year old, I was uh, fascinated by how prescient Graham Greene was. Um, The book came out in 55 and he called America's coming catastrophe in Southeast Asia. He just nailed it. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, why didn't Kennedy read this book? Why didn't Eisenhower read this book? Why didn't LBJ read this book? But I also realized that because this was the early 70s and there was also a woman's movement going on that Graham Greene would not, did not, and could not have predicted. So I realized that the women in the novel were um, not given much uh, of the narrator's attention. And especially a very brief scene with two young American women that the journalist sees, dismisses. And even then I thought, what are two young 20-something American girls doing in Saigon in the early 1950s? They must be interesting. And that would have been even on your first reading way back then. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, being a, an undergrad and thinking I wanted to see the world too, right, right away I recognized here's a couple of American women who did go out and do something rather exotic in their early careers. Well, what prompted you to reread the book? Um, well, you know, I've, I admired Graham Greene, and it's a lovely, it's a wonderful novel. It's structured uh, beautifully, uh, again, it, politically and historically prescient, but also great tension. It's a wonderful book to teach, and I have taught it over the years just for the the way it's structured and the way it builds and um, the way character is developed. But I also went back to it, you know, I've lived inside the Beltway for over 30 years now. And during that time, time and again, I would run into women a little bit older than myself, you know, grandparents of my kids' peers, um, or just people you meet at cocktail parties and embassy parties when you live in this area. And time and again, I would have conversations with these women and I would think they could have been models for those two girls in 
The Quiet American. And they've had very interesting lives. Um, a lot of them were spouses, you know, diplomats, State Department, CIA, uh, um, uh, military spouses. So time and again, I would be reminded in different ways about that scene and, and sort of feel this, this emotional nudge that somebody needs to give those characters their own novel. Somebody needs to turn a spotlight on the women, behind the scenes women, when all these world changing events were going on in 1963, which, as you know, was a rich year historically. So this is going on in the back of your mind. And in the meantime, you're writing these other novels. At what point do you say to yourself, well, okay, Graham, here I'm coming? <laughs> So at one of these cocktail parties, you know, and this is some years back now, maybe six or seven years, a woman who had indeed been a young wife in Saigon mentioned, and I don't remember what the context, you know, you're just having chit-chat conversations, that she and her friends used to make out of the scraps from their dressmakers would make little doll clothes. Yeah. And when she told me that, I had this sort of, you know, um, Proustian (laughs) recollection of being a kid on Long Island, you know, early 60s, and being sent to play Barbie dolls with some, and I can't remember who it was. It wasn't a real friend. It was like a play date. And this girl had a Barbie doll in a Southeast Asian outfit. Wow. And of course, I was a kid. So I didn't ask her, where'd you get that? I just, re- But I remember being very jealous and wanting it because it wasn't in the catalog and it was silk and it was very beautiful. So that was the, the real nudge that I needed. I thought, okay, this is a way in. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write an origin story for a Barbie doll dressed in an Audi. How would that have happened? How can I imagine how that would have happened? So that got me going. So when you sat down, did you do any specific research on Saigon? This was, so this would have been 2016, 17. Did you make a trip over there? Did you just look at Google? (laughs) Yeah. You know, what I always do is I have to hear the voice first before I do anything else. I have to know what the words are. I have to know who's telling the story. So that first chapter, I just wrote. I just it. I just gave over to imagination. Um, how could this happen? How would an American girl end up with a Barbie doll dressed in a Vietnamese Audi? Don't worry about anything else. Just hear the voice. Find out who the characters are. But then when I thought, okay, I can do something with this, then I began to think, well, I've always wanted to visit Vietnam, and I can kind of feel like a journalist. I can take a a trip to Vietnam. And two things happened. COVID came along (laughs) and I knew that wasn't going to happen soon. But also I realized I can't go to Saigon in 1963. It's, It's not accessible to me. And I also know the power of fiction in my own life and how vivid my experience of place is, places I've never been, through reading novels. So I I realized it's this is not Ho Chi Minh City. I'm not writing a travelogue. This is 
the experience of my characters at a time that's long past. So the, what I did in the way of research was first I went back to the Vietnam novels that I had read and loved. So, of course, Tim O'Brien's work immediately I took down from my shelf. Dennis Johnson's Tree of Smoke, which is a great, big, thick novel and wonderfully immersive. And then I went back to some of the memoirs. Again, you know, Vietnam was an important part of my own growing up. Uh, Philip Caputo's Rumor of War is a wonderful memoir. Uh, but of course, they're all war stories. And they're all by men. And they're all by men, right. And very, very little about, again, the women who were taking care of the children before LBJ made them all leave the country in the early 60s. So it was really a lot of knowing the character and then hoping by, and I did go back and read a lot of political histories, uh, Bright Shining Lie and Death in December, in November, and just uh, things from that time, but not really with any purpose, like not knowing that exactly what I was looking for, but just hoping that as I was composing the novel, I would I would have what I needed because I had been immersing myself in other writers' work about Vietnam. Alice McDermott, very early on, we meet two other characters, one of whom is only in flashbacks, which is her best friend. And the yeah. other, of course, is Charlene. And then we meet Rainey, Charlene's daughter. And at a certain point, we realize that that this isn't a novel in the first person, but more a woman telling a story. And right. that sort of changes things a little bit. How did those realizations come about? And when Charlene popped up, did she pop up full-blown? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she just elbowed her way into that first chapter. <laughs> um, my first reaction was kind of like Trisha's, I don't like this gal. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I knew, and again, this this is from my own experience with, with uh, chatting in so many different ways with women of that generation, women who came of age uh, in the 50s. And I knew from my own experience, almost intuitively, that these are not women who would broadcast their experience. They would not sit down and write a memoir and expect people to read it. You know, here in the real world, you know, if you talk to these women, you know, again, carpool line or after church and, and, and someone might say, well, you know, when we were in Burma and you'd say, oh, when were you, in, when my children were small, you know, when we were living in Burma and then they would say something about their children and you had to pry it out of them. What was that like? Well, you know, my husband, my husband was doing all the interesting stuff. I was just taking care of the house and the children. So I knew that a woman character like this as a narrator had, somebody had to ask her to tell the story. Um, oh. She would not have the ego to say, I am so interesting. You're just going to want to hear everything I said. The novel begins almost with an unasked question, or the, the question itself is only implied, and Trisha begins to answer it. So that is the, the woman who otherwise would not tell her story beginning to tell her story. And then it becomes clear that to make it make sense, it would have to involve the people in the story. At that point, as you began it, were you aware that the story was being told in the present or close to the present? 
Yeah, I, I, I knew right away that this was recollection. Again, okay. that this was something that would be invoked. Um, you know, please tell me. Uh, Rainey asked, do you remember me? Do you remember my mother? And do you remember a particular young GI who was there in Saigon with us named Dominic? That's the question that's asked, although it's not actually in the novel. It's the unspoken thing that begins the novel. So yeah, I, I wasn't interested, honestly, in only what the experience of these women would have been like in 1963. I was far more interested in what do they make of it now? Looking back through six decades, knowing what they know, and the world changed so much, you know, 63 was a precipice in so many ways. Certainly America's involvement in the war, you know, they have the assassination of, of Diem in early November and then JFK's assassination three weeks later. But, you know, so much, there was a march on Washington. Medgar Evers was assassinated earlier that year. Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique that year, the first rumbling of how these women's lives would change, or at least the way they thought about themselves would change in, in the next, very quickly, in the next decade. And then, Alice McDermott, you had a kind of a, not an outline, because it's no outline per se, but you had a calendar. And that calendar, at every moment, would guide you on where the characters were going. So you always almost had like a staircase to climb. Yes, right, right. And this is very much Trish's recollection. I mean, as we do, you know, memory doesn't always move in chronological order. We we remember things in all kinds of um, jagged ways. One thing evokes a memory. But in the fact that this is a story she's telling, so of course she begins with, this was my first meeting with you and right. your mother. Do you remember my mother? Yes, let me tell you how we first met. And then the next meeting. And then, and then she goes sort of through the year. Trisha and her husband, Peter, are in Saigon for less than a year because he ends up quitting. So, so that is her guide. Um, let me see what happened in April, what happened in June. One of the things I noticed in the book, and I don't know if it's just from the writing or whether you were consciously doing it, is parceling out the little bits of information so that we get at a certain point, okay, works for the CIA, but we don't get that at first. We get all of these little bits and pieces about her life, and then we begin to see something, particularly when her best friend comes into the memory. Why did you bring her in, or did she just show up in a sentence of Trisha's? Well, I thought it was really important. Trisha is, you know, in some ways, almost a stereotype of the innocent abroad. The innocent, she's 23 years old. She went to a Marymount, all girl, at that time, all girl school in Manhattan, only child of older parents, um, Irish immigrants from Yonkers. She hasn't been a lot of places. And, and the way she's swept up by Charlene, and, who, who is a corporate wife, a little bit older, very confident, very sure of what she wants to do. I, I felt in order to make 
Trisha and Charlene's relationship truly believable and understandable to the reader, there had to be a precursor. There had to be another friend earlier in Trisha's life who sort of prepared the ground for Charlene coming in and taking over Trisha. And it was also really important to me not only to to get a sense of what Trisha was like before she is in Saigon and encounters all these things, but in some ways early on I said this this is also a novel about class. She is an innocent abroad, but she's not an Ivy Leaguer. She's not from wealth. She's not one of these, you know, maybe State Department secretaries who um, daddy is paying the rent and so they can go off and, and have adventures abroad. And that, I think, to get at the Americanness of the, these characters, it was important that Trisha is in a brave new world, even when she's home in the United States, because her husband, who's also a working class kid from Yonkers, is in the ascendancy. He's very smart. He was in the Navy, went to engineering school on the GI Bill, went to law school, got a good job. Now he's with Navy intelligence. And he and she are entering into the world of diplomats and ambassadors who are waspy and, and from wealth. So in some ways, um, that seemed to me very essential to, to understand that she's in a brave new world, even back in New York, and she will be for the rest of her life. But there's also an element there, born Jewish. I really don't know that much about the Catholic world other than from friends, but your work has a lot to do with Catholicism and what it means, and how it enters your life and the world. There's a little bit of that in Trisha's background. I'm just curious, is there something that I, being outside that culture, might have missed that was a point that I wasn't necessarily going to get, but that you knew was there? That's a really interesting question. Um, You know, I I thought initially... Not only was I was I writing in an, in a new geographic place, um, setting part of the story anyway in Saigon, even though I have an Irish Catholic <laughs> right, character, yeah. not not really anything new for me. But <laughs> you know, but there were yeah, there were there were two things. But I, I don't think I don't think it's so much the religious spiritual aspect. But there was you know we had our first Catholic president in JFK and the president of Vietnam at the time. And there was a historical precedent for the CIA looking to recruit Catholic men because the defeat of communism was not just a, um, a political expediency, but for faithful Catholics, it was a, a mandate from the creator that it it was just like, we don't like socialism. We don't like communism. It was this way of life threatens God in the world. And so it was really important to me to to understand, you know, we look back now in in 2023 and, and we see all the folly and the mistakes that were made, but it was important for me to, to sort of make the imaginative leap to understand men and their spouses 
who believed in 1963 that what they were doing in Vietnam was a good, was, you know, a very important good. God mandated. Um, the defeat of communism was an existential moment. You know, there was no avoiding Catholicism um, when you're writing about Vietnam in 1963 because you got these two Catholic presidents. DM and New and Two, they were all Catholic too, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, in a Buddhist and, country. Yes, right. Madame New was actually raised Buddhist, but but became Catholic. But in a predominantly right in a predominantly Buddhist country, the president was a Catholic. I mean, there certainly were Catholics there, and there were many other faiths. But yeah, predominantly Buddhist country. But again, there was this sense of communism as the godless society. And as much as that belief may have been manipulated and used to um, the advantage of people who were making money (laughs) on what was going on in Vietnam, nevertheless, and this is what I wanted to give credit to the characters, if you can call it that, nevertheless, there were people who sincerely believed that this was the right thing to do. You know, in some ways, it's an important question in the novel, you know, good intentions gone awry. What then does that mean that they weren't good to begin with? Or the the consequences were not exactly what were hoped for. But does that always disparage the impulse? And, you know, in some ways, the novel is about, I think, the question that all faiths ask. And that is, can you do any good in the world? Are good works slash is love redemptive in any way? Or is it all essentially inconsequential, as Charlene ends up saying? Is that one of the reasons the name of the book is Absolution? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. And maybe this is how the 2020, 2021, and 2022 (laughs) came into my workshop, even though I thought I was mostly focusing on the past. And, And that is maybe as a way to dismantle our current certainty about right and we're always right or who's wrong. If you look at the full context of any individual life, I think fiction is meant to do or, or does really well is give us a sense of, we know the overview, we know what happened, we know the history, we know all the mistakes, but can we still look at any individual life and grant them a kind of absolution for their intentions. There's a refrain, uh, tikkum olam, which is from the Hebrew, a refrain that Trisha learns. And when she shares it with Charlene, Charlene says, uh, repair the world. Okay, that's fine. But the Buddhists say, mend yourself. And it becomes in some ways the central question of the novel. What good can you do? And do you repair the world or do you hunker down and take care of your own. Alice McDermott, my old partner on my radio show, uh, now deceased, Richard Lupoff, came up with a really interesting question, which I like to ask writers, which is when you're writing, do you see what's coming out on paper or in your computer as discovery or creation? (laughs) That is a very interesting question. I suppose for me, it feels more like discovery. I always feel, and I guess this is a thing that, that keeps a lot of us writing, even when we're, we're not quite sure <laughs> where the story is taking us yet. 
but I always have the sense that it's there, you know, that, that there it's, it's the, you know, it's, it's the, the statue in the block of stone. It's already there. You just have to discover it. You have to find it. You have to, by working at language, by working to make your characters and, and your scenes as vivid as possible in the best way, sentence by sentence, somehow by doing that, in some ways your unconscious leads you to, if not the perfect form for the story, I don't think any of us ever claim that it's the perfect form for the story, but it's the story you must tell, the story that you've been given to tell at this moment. So yeah, I would say it feels in many ways like discovery to me. Does it get easier each time or is it equally hard each time? I think it's equally hard. The thing that makes it easier is that I no longer think about another career. (laughs) (laughs) And you've already got your day job, so. Yeah, Yeah, no, I mean, I think that was the hardest part, you know, for maybe the first four books, you know, I don't have to do this. I could have gone to law school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are other things I can do. I have some talents other than this. But now that's not a word. I'm going to be doing this until I can't do it anymore. (laughs) Uh, In Image Magazine, you talk about how you create characters and that once the character becomes defined, the further you get into it, it's not as if the character is actually making decisions. It's more as if you are perceiving the character and you get to know what those decisions would be. And so I guess as the book goes along, that takes more and more control in a way of, of any book you're writing. Right, right. I mean, there's a sense of, of, of growing inevitability. Now, the inevitability is based on what you have already proposed, what you've already written. So it's not like it's coming out of the air and being imposed on you. But, you know, we're making this stuff up when we write novels. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, we can do anything. You know, I, I, I suppose I could have said that the president of Vietnam was not a Catholic and told a different story entirely, a speculative story, science fiction, whatever, a rewrite of history. But once you say, okay, I'm saying to the reader, uh, here's my proposition. There is this woman and she's been asked to recollect and this is who she is and this is her background and this is what she's thinking in this scene and this is what she notices. And each time you do that, you limit other possibilities for your character. It's just so it gets to the point where she would not say that. Now, if I wanted to say that, I'll have to go back and change everything that I've proposed about her so far. But the logic, the, the, truth, the truthiness of it, the logic <laughs> of character acting or speaking becomes predetermined. But of course, it's all in your control. But if you say, this, I'm keeping this chapter, I'm giving this to the reader, then I don't have full freedom. You know, the logic of what I've already proposed shuts down all kinds of other options. The first draft, how close is that to the final? Uh, I rewrite what I wrote the day before. I add a little bit to it. I rewrite that the next day. So generally, by the time I get to what seems to be the last page, 
I've been rewriting constantly and, and then that's it. So I very seldom, and I know some writers who do this to great effect um, and great success, but I very seldom write a whole draft and then rewrite a whole draft. I'm constantly working and working through. Um, and once I say that's the first chapter, it pretty much is the first chapter. And so that by the time I get to the end, I don't rewrite the whole book, but I've been rewriting all along. So the end becomes kind of inevitable in its own way, too, because everything has already been there. That's the hope. Right? <laughs> do, you, do you ever think about going back and thinking, what happened to these characters afterward? I mean, in this case, you know, they're elderly people talking back. There's not that much going on. But do you ever want to revisit characters, even if it's just in memory? No. <laughs> no? No. When it's done, am, it's done. I am not a sequel writer at all. I am so, when I get to that, that, last, that last page and that last sentence, I drop the mic. It's done. <laughs> no. Here's an aesthetic question similar to the one I asked before, but it's something I've been thinking about, particularly in terms of fiction, though this conversation is more about theater. There's a, an artistic director in San Francisco who talks about live theater being kind of an empathy gym, mm. which is kind of an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. My plus one that I take, because I review these plays, <laughs> keeps going, no, no, no. What I think it's important is whether I've been moved or not. Mm -hmm. So as kind of a, a conversation between those two elements, where would Alice McDermott fit? Hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I understand and I like that, that idea of an empathy exercise, not with the sense that you're going to leave the theater or close the book and be a better person for it. You know, you don't have to spend a lot of time around English departments to know that really poetry and literature doesn't really improve people's personalities. <laughs> you, know, you can be just as petty as, as anyone else. But I do think of it as the, and, and I think this speaks to your contention of being moved by it. For me, it's more being immersed in it. And maybe it's a little bit of both those things. To be fully there you know, to, to, to be sitting in a theater and you know you're sitting in a theater and you know these are actors and you know somebody has told them to say these words and, you know, and there are strangers on either side of you or all around you and yet you're immersed in the drama. You're feeling. And to me, that is central actually to absolution as well. One of the things that drew me in is I felt I was in Vietnam with Trisha. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, and I think that maybe, you know, optimistically, if you have had that kind of immersion and you have felt that emotional catharsis, or, or at least you, you felt emotional in some way because you're so immersed, then maybe you have had your empathy expanded a little bit. <laughs> maybe, you know, it will show up in other ways. You know, that that idea of that I have seen through someone else's eyes. I have experienced something that felt like an experience, but it was only time spent with a work of art. Well, you use the word truthiness, which I really like because, you know, when we're reading novels, it's fiction. But 
facts are less important in a novel than truthiness, making it feel true. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the unique thing that, that we're all agreed, you know, okay, I know that I'm being told a story. I know that somebody is manipulating this story, but I also know maybe the story is bringing me to something that is beyond, as you say, the facts, the history, um, the thing itself. One of the aspects of, of this novel that both surprised and seemed really clear to me comes from Rainey's section, the, the, the little girl in Saigon in 1963 who asked the question and then gives a response. And it became very clear to me as Rainey was responding to Trisha's very long recollection, how unsettled she is. And in some ways, her generation, which is closer to mine, is. I found myself again and again thinking, you know, her, her father left Saigon. He didn't want any more foreign uh, assignments either. He's, a, he's an oil executive. And they settle in Garden City, which is a place in New York, but is also a kind of Garden of Eden, a safe place. That Rainey, being a typical teenager of the anti-war years, is thrown out by her parents because she's mouthing off. As an older woman, she's an empty nester. She has she and her husband have found a country home that they've renovated. They're not comfortable there. Next door is this GI, and his farmhouse has all these disparate additions that have been made over the years. And I don't think I'm giving anything away, but when Rainey's husband first begins to show signs of dementia, the first thing he says is, I don't know where I am. And that was something I never could have predicted about her response. But it, it sort of overwhelmed me with this everything that went wrong about America's intervention in right. Vietnam, that we think we figured out what went wrong, we won't do that again. Or we'd... It has an echo in the psyche. And I think that echo comes through Rainey's voice in, in just this kind of lifelong disquiet, I mean, sort of a lifelong sense of not really being settled in, in the country of her birth. Was that section always going to be there? Yeah, I really did feel that I didn't want a, a novel just that was a recollection of time in Vietnam. I didn't want a quiet American. You know, it seems to me that that one of the refrains that I hear all the time talking about, and not just talking about Vietnam, talking about Iraq and Afghanistan and 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 now what's going on in the in the wider world. You know, in 1963, there were 120 Americans were killed in Vietnam. By 75, it was 58,000. And the refrain is always, what for? What did we get? Why? What for? You, you can walk by the Vietnam Wall and actually hear that refrain, you know, in, here in D.C. What for? What was it for? And I felt someone in the novel had to address that. So I knew Rainey would respond but I didn't predict until I started listening to her voice, this slow, and I'm not even sure she's aware of it, this slow, what we got is we got home, safe place to raise your kids, but never quite comfortable in our own skins, never quite comfortable in this land of the free. 
And then to that question of, do you go out and try to repair the world or do you just shut the front door, take care of your own, which seems to be where many of us in this country are, certain members of Congress these days, (laughs) saying, why are we worried about what's going on over there? We can't repair the world. Let's just shut the windows and close the door and take care of ourselves. I want to move on a little to your career, Alice McDermott, but two quick questions about two incidents in the book. The first is bringing in the civil rights era in the book in one flashback. And the second, of course, is the visit to a leper colony. How did those come in? I think I can get the reason for the civil rights movement and goes back to a lot of what you've been saying about America and Americans' reaction overseas and at home. Mm -hmm. But the leper colony kind of came out of thin air for me, and I was just kind of delighted it was there. How did that come about? And you're right. Social justice, the determination, again, of women, young women of a certain era with limited possibilities, limited career possibilities, but who have been told, and this goes back to their Catholic education, preferential treatment to the for the poor, that you do have to go out and change the world. You know, they've been taught by nuns who've given up their whole lives to, you know, do good. So again, this sort of laying the groundwork for Charlene, Stella in the past is the one who who brings Trisha along. Trisha's not really quite sure what good she's going to do or even what she's going to do. Um, but Stella has, you know, she's determined. She has French slave owners in in her past, and she is going to reconcile the past, make up for, for her ancestors. On the other hand, the leper colony in, in that summer of 1963 I knew, and I, I guess after Graham Greene, the uh, the other guy who was on my shoulder was Conrad, <laughs> Joseph Conrad. And so I've got an innocent abroad in a place on the precipice of a terrible war, and I need to bring them into the heart of darkness. <laughs> you know? and, and lack of safety. Yes, right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's also, it sort of ups the ante. Uh, I mean, Charlene, one of the first things she says to Tricia is, I want to do good, but it takes money. So she has both sides of her, a, a real sincere effort to ease the suffering of others, and then a kind of mercenary, but I don't have any money. My husband gives me an allowance, so I got to do whatever I can to get to get money so I can do good. And the form of doing good, as it was for many wives in that time and place, was to take care of children, to bring lollipops to the children's hospital, to get clothes for the orphans. And then Charlene ups the ante because her philosophy is the greatest evil is to look away from suffering. Even if you can't stop it, don't look away from it. And so she's been bringing her little toys to this leper colony she gets this idea to now bring clothes, to bring beautiful aoyais, just like the ones they were making for the Barbie dolls and selling to raise money, to bring it to the women in the leper colony, to show them that we're not looking away from you, that we believe in your beauty, even in the midst of your suffering. The interesting thing is I had an email just this week 
from a man about our age who was the son of the acting ambassador, William Trueheart, in Saigon. Really? He was the acting ambassador between Nolting and Henry Cabot Lodge. And he told me, he had read the book, and he said his mother and Ambassador Nolting's wife raised money for a leper orphanage. And I had absolutely no idea that there was any real (laughs) involvement of American women in leper. I knew there were leper colonies in Vietnam. I have friends who served in Vietnam and our soldiers, our, you know, medical corpsmen did do work with leper colonies were run by nuns and they, and they did do work giving medicine. So I knew that happened, but I never, I thought I had completely made up these do-gooding American wives showing up at the leper colony. And now I just found out that it actually happened. (laughs) Well, of course, you also discovered when the book was released that Barbie was on everyone's mind. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Alice McDermott, let's go back to the origins of your career. In a couple of interviews, you have talked about your brothers who would not let you get in a word. So even as a little girl, you made up brothers who (laughs) idolized you. And somehow that started you on a writing career. Is that that a story or is that pretty much? You know, I think that's very accurate. And as soon as I could write, I would write things down, the things that I felt like I didn't get to say and a world where I was much more appreciated, not just the the younger sister who was hushed up. Since I have said that publicly, my brothers have disagreed strenuously, and they claim that I talked all the time. (laughs) Through their childhood, I just told endless story after story after story, and they don't know what I'm talking about that I felt in any way repressed. (laughs) So it's two versions. (laughs) On the other hand, men always interrupt women anyway. Exactly. (laughs) And both my brothers grew up to become lawyers, so you can understand, yeah, the impulse for them to to correct and to talk over was pretty strong. In that image article, you also talk about how in college you wrote an autobiography that was actually fiction. Uh, Can you just give that anecdote? It's a great one. (laughs) Yeah, it was one of the first writing classes I took, and uh, it was called The Nature of Nonfiction, and and the first assignment was to write an autobiographical essay. And I had nothing interesting to write. There was nothing interesting about me. So I wrote a story from first person as if I was, you know, some a, a character very much like me going into New York City with a friend who was having an abortion. Now, I had never done that. (laughs) It was completely imagined. Um, It was very short. And when I brought it in, the, the professor was a retired Air Force colonel and journalist who was teaching this nature of nonfiction creative writing class. And he would put put all our writing up on an overhead projector on a huge screen and correct it with a wax pencil. This was, you know, 
primitive <laughs> audiovisual days. And after he read my piece and, you know, marked it up, he said, McDermott, I need to talk to you after class. So I went down very sheepishly and I was pretty sure he was going to say, you can't make up. I mean, these days they probably would have sent me to counseling, (laughs) but but that didn't happen then. I just thought that this was not the assignment was what he was going to say. And instead he said to me, I got bad news for you, kid. You're a writer and you'll never shake it. And it was everything I needed to hear. At what point did you decide to start a first novel and and when a novel was published was it that novel or was it two or three novels down the road no i've been very fortunate you know i i went and got a masters in in writing and i started publishing a few short stories here and there and then my husband and i got married and he was finishing his phd on the upper east side of manhattan at cornell medical and we sort of put our resources together. We had an incredible apartment for very little money because it was student housing. And I was doing a little freelance editing work. And so we just said, you know, I could take six months to try this writing thing full time. So I thought, well, I can't write, you know, finish a short story on Tuesday and start a new one Wednesday morning. If I'm going to have all this time, I might as well try my hand at my first novel. And that was the novel that was published as my first novel. As a matter of fact, Jonathan Galassi, who is still my editor and has been my editor through all 10 books, bought the manuscript on the first 100 pages. So I had a publisher long before I had the confidence that I was actually going to finish this. Do you remember at all how that novel began in your mind and getting it down on I guess it would have been a typewriter then. Yes. Yeah. That first day or a couple of days, had you, did you know what you were going to write or did you just say, okay? A little bit of both. I was writing, as I said, my husband was at Cornell Medical. So I would go over every morning to the medical library uh, and sit in the stacks. And I was writing longhand. You know, I write my first drafts in longhand. And it was really, okay, today I'm going to start a novel. What do I know? Do I know anything? And for one year between undergrad and graduate school, I had worked at a vanity press in Manhattan. And then when I was in graduate school and took a a course in journalism, this I didn't make up, I wrote a story about vanity presses and how they work. And so I had done a lot of research. So I thought, well, I know a lot about vanity presses. I, I worked at one. I know how they work. I've done all my research. So why don't I start with a character who works at a vanity press? And this is how current events intervene. I was going along very well, getting up every morning and going over, treating it like as if it were a real job, writing, writing, writing. And then the Shah of Iran came to America to go to New York Hospital, which is where the medical library for Cornell Medical is. <laughs> and, and one morning I got up and I and with my little pad and went to go back to my desk in the stacks and there were riot police blocking the door <laughs> because there were protesters all up and down York Avenue. And after that, I had to finish the novel in our apartment. <laughs> Damn that Shaw of Iran. <laughs> well, he didn't end up well. Um, (laughs) And there's another American bungle. 
There you go. <laughs> they come one after another. Yeah. You said before that somewhere around the fourth or fifth novel, you began realizing you were actually going to be a writer full time. Was the clue being able to option that night? No, I think it was somehow, miraculously, the world is letting me do this. You know, somehow, miraculously, I write a book and it gets published. You know, I was hired to teach. I was teaching at Johns Hopkins for 23 years, a wonderful position with fabulous students. There's no way I would have gotten into Johns Hopkins as an undergrad, no way in the world. And here I was a full professor. So it just seemed that this benevolent universe had arranged itself so that I could write. And I finally accepted that. (laughs) And well, then if the world is going to be good enough to me to let me do this thing that nobody thought I should do or would be successful at, then I should dedicate uh, myself and stop looking around and thinking, what else can I do? You mentioned early on that you always have two books going at once. That's a little bit unusual. How did that come about? And what do you think it does to make each book better? It's a really bad idea. It it really just means it takes you twice as long to finish one of them. Um, uh, but yeah, I've been doing this since my my first novel. I just wrote straight out. But then with the second, I started writing, having two books going, and and I've kept that that bad habit up since then. You know, I think early on it was sort of a fail safe. You know, so that if one novel sort of dies on the vine or I lose energy or interest in it, I have something else. I'm not facing a blank page. That gives me the freedom to say this isn't as good as I would like it to be. I can put it aside because I have something else. Whether that makes one or the other any better, I'm not sure. I think it's it's just the way I work. And sometimes both novels get published and sometimes I do let one go or I Uh, retool it so radically it becomes something else entirely. But it's also, you know, I don't have a lot of hobbies. (laughs) Um, Well, you read a lot. And I read a lot. Yeah. And, and I love, you know, I love working at it. I hate it when it's not going well, but I love working at, at writing. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, busman's holiday. Well, I'll take a break from this novel that I'm working. And now what I'm, I'm taking a break, oh, I'll go work on this other one. This is much more fun. It gives me plenty to do. When you're working on Absolution, did you hit those points where you're going, oh, God, I'm stuck? (laughs) You know, I think always at my back, I heard, what are you doing writing about Vietnam? Really? What in the world is, number one, do we need another book about Vietnam? You don't know anything about what do you know? You know, you have no real experience of the place. You have no real experience of these women and their lives. What are you doing? And it's usually at that point, I'm invested enough in the characters that I feel obliged to them. But yeah, you know, who's going to call me out? <laughs> you know, what do you know? You, you know, you don't, you never lived there. You never even went there. What are you talking about? You know, but the characters. Once the characters sort of get in your head and you hear their voice, there is a sense of, I need to put myself at their service to tell their stories, and I'll worry about the reception later. They don't have to worry about it. They'll never know. (laughs) 
<laughs> I've been doing interviews for 45 years or so. I mean, the first ones we won't talk about. But, you know, when I go into one, and that includes this one, a part of me is going, you know, I don't know as much about Alice McDermott as that guy from Image. I really <laughs> on and on about Catholic stuff. And here I am going in, having seen one movie, having read <laughs> one book, wishing I could read all of them now that I've read that one. What am I doing? And then the final thing comes to me, you know, if it fails, I won't air it. Screw it. Right. And that could be a freedom to kind of say, okay, I'm going to take a leap. I'm going to ask questions and maybe they're dumb or not. There's a quote from Seamus Heaney that I have battered many young writers with, and it's in one of his poems. And then he, he quotes it, his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. And he's talking about poets, but I think it's it, it applies to all of this. And he says, we must teach ourselves to walk on air against our better judgment. And I always think of that, of that, I'm stepping off the edge. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I'm doing. This could be a disaster, but I'm going to do it. Why not? Why not? And I think all the best endeavors must have something of that, at least in the beginning. Alice McDermott, last night I watched the film of that night. Do you remember... It, we're going back 30 years now. Do you remember much about how it came to be or your initial reaction to it? Yes, that night, because it was my second novel and it was my first big encounter with Hollywood. I had a few small interest in the first novel and talked to a couple of producers. But Scott Rudin called me up and said, I sent your book to Milos Forman and he wants to direct the movie. At the time, I was living in La Jolla, California, and he said, so we're sending a car for you. We want you to come to New York and have dinner with Milos. So, yeah, it was like out of a movie. I had a little baby. <laughs> you know, I lived in a little townhouse, and the big limo came up, and it was first class all the way, and had tea with Scott Rudin, and then got into the limo with Milos Forman. And it was, you know, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then Milos Forman asked me if I would write the screenplay or he and I would write the screenplay together. And I kind of said, you know, I have a baby at home and I'm not moving in with you to write a screenplay. That fell through, as many things do in Hollywood. And, and then for a couple of years, there were all kinds of people who were interested in doing it. And finally, it was bought up by somebody, Craig Bolton, who both wrote the screenplay and directed. You know, he sent me every once in a while, he would send me some questions as he was writing the screenplay. And then oddly enough, the soundstage was in Baltimore. And so I was invited by this time, that time I was living here in Bethesda and I was invited up to the soundstage. And I arrived at the soundstage and I had by this time a little bit bigger, uh, older son with me. And one of the actors came out just as I was approaching and said, I loved your novel. And I'm so sorry what we're doing to it. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's not good. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to write it. I, did, I write novels. I don't write screenplays. I think novels are a superior art form. I love the movies, but it's not for me. I'm not enamored of it. 
So it was just, you paid for it, you go and do what you want to do with it. The book doesn't change after the movie comes out. It's still the same book. So it was a hoot. You know, it's a lot of fun. Juliette Lewis was very interesting in it. Elijah Dushku was discovered to play the little girl, was her first role. So, yeah, good things came out of it. It is available to anybody who has a Hulu subscription or Plex. So anybody could watch it now. It's around. Alice McDermott, what are you working on now? You have two books going? I have two books going. I do. I have two books going. Um, teaching myself to walk on air against my better judgment. <laughs> and I guess to jinx would be to give anything away. Yes. Yes, for sure. For sure. At this point, God knows what either one of them really is. <laughs> when you're working on two books like that, are they kind of at the same point or is one of them way further than the other? Yeah, generally one's really just unrolling and the other one is maybe I have thought about more or or further along. Again, because it's usually the two I'm working on, the one that's further along, I was working on while I was working on Absolution. So it sort uh, of works like that, you know, that kind of rolling. <laughs> that also means that you're rewriting and rewriting two books at the same time with two different narrators, mm -hmm. with two different voices. And it doesn't get confusing. I don't switch hour to hour. You know, sometimes I'll spend a couple of months with one and then go back or four days of the week with one and then spend a couple of hours. I'm not flipping back and forth. It's, I mean, you know, most writers have that I, like I know of, uh, you know, they have a novel going and they're writing an essay or they're writing a book review. And it's, it's not terribly different from that. And you're still teaching. No, I have retired from teaching. Um, do you miss it? I do. I do. I miss the exchange. I've, I've visited a few classes. One of the things that strikes me every time I do visit a class, I'm, I've only been retired a couple of years now, that how much it renews my faith to be around young people who want to write, smart young people who, you know, could be getting their MBAs or, or their law degrees or their MDs, but they want to write literary fiction. They want to write poetry. They want to write short stories. It's always so reassuring when you think the culture um, is is we'll never be the readers we once were and that we're all losing our attention spans and that immersive experience that we were talking about earlier of believing in something that you know is is an artifact and yet living it something is bringing even young right you know young writers who have had telephone you know little screens in their faces since they were born they're still recognizing the importance of that. And I love to see that. They're smart and they're creative and they're, you know, they'll keep us in, in good literature for a long time. You've been listening to an interview with Alice McDermott, whose latest novel is Absolution. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>